It's going down, and you're invited for what they selling. We ain't buying. There is no running. There is no hiding. There's only fighting or dying. It's going down, and you're invited for what they selling. We ain't buying. There is no running. There is no hiding. There's only fighting or dying. It's Going Down is a digital community center from anarchist, anti-fascist, autonomous, anti-capitalist, and anti-colonial movements. Our mission is to provide an autonomous and resilient platform to publicize and promote revolutionary theory and action. Go to itsgoingdown.org for daily updates. Check out our online store for ways to donate and rate and follow us on iTunes if you like this podcast. I'm Rhiannon and she, her. Uh, I live in London, UK. Uh, I've lived here for about 10 years. Uh, before that, I grew up in the Midlands and I did um, my degrees and PhD in the Midlands uh, in the UK. Um, I'm active in various social movements. Um, I got into anarchism via the traveller and rave scene and DIY eco-protest scene in the late 90s in the UK. Um, and I was also a sort of real geek that was really good at school, so I was sort of doing anarchist stuff, and then I sort of got into studying anarchism sort of academically as well at the same time. Uh, as I was doing, I was doing, I did a politics degree, and then I went on and did a master's and a PhD, so, um, I sort of studied a lot of radical politics while I was living it as well. Um, and then I moved to London and I've been uh, working as a lecturer and a researcher on various precarious contracts for about 15 years since I finished my PhD. Um, I was active in the Occupy movement back when I was still living in Nottingham, so it's sort of quite a small camp back there. Um, and in London, I've mostly been involved with sort of anti-gentrification and um sort of popular education critical pedagogy type projects um and i've written some academic books and articles and my latest book is sort of trying to be less academic and sort of it, it is academic it is quite academic but it's also trying to sort of have a sort of social movement relevance as well um so that's called Disaster Anarchy, uh, which I think is why I've been invited to talk on the show. And it's about mutual aid disaster relief, which I'm, I know has been a thing in, in the States for sort of a lot, lot, much longer than it has here. Uh, and I, um, I got into that because I was working on a research project about disasters. Um, and my boss sort of wanted me to go and interview some people who were involved with Occupy Sandy because he knew that's the kind of thing I'm interested in and there was a bit of money to do that so I sort of jumped at the chance uh, and I went in 2015 on sort of the third third anniversary of, of the hurricane um, and I interviewed a bunch of really cool people and obviously sort of coming from the UK the US is like a really different context and I'm still getting to grips with that and I do sort of worry a bit about an American audience reading my book because there's, you know, there's definitely stuff I might have got wrong or misunderstood because of my context I'm coming from. But then I also find that when I read American books about the UK, there's that kind of gap as well. So I'm hoping that's a sort of productive dialogue rather than anything else. But yeah, I'm also aware that 
There's been a lot more disasters in the States than there has in the UK, and it's relatively recently that we've had any disasters at all here. So I was finishing this book on uh, Occupy Sandy, which was initially just meant to be an article, but actually I found there wasn't really anything academic on um, on disaster. There wasn't anything anarchist, and certainly not anything academic and anarchist that I could find at the time on sort of mutual aid disaster relief. I started writing this in 2015. Um, there's been a lot more stuff in the sort of anarchist press like over the last few years, but still nothing academic. I've, well, not much, very little academic about anarchist social movements mobilising sort of disaster relief and consciousness raising around disasters and all that kind of thing. Um, so it took me ages to sort of find enough stuff to write a book and I just ended up reading 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 and it ended up not being an article it was sort of took took a book to process that um and I was just finishing the book and it was nearly done after five years and then COVID hit and there was this huge mutual aid movement in the UK so I thought well I can't really have written this book around mutual aid disaster relief sitting in London when all my friends are sort of mobilizing mutual aid movements and not include that so uh, I did some interviews in London as well with with sort of people I knew through my network, which also a lot of the academic stuff that's come about uh, the COVID-19 mutual aid movement was with a lot that I'm probably going to talk about this later in the interview, but just about the depoliticized sections of the movement, which was probably most of it. Uh, but because I'm interested in anarchism, I interviewed um, anarchists. So I think that's sort of quite an interesting an original contribution in the UK context at least not many people have written about that um and also I sort of compared some of the things that happened with Occupy Sandy with um with that but um yeah I'll stop there for a minute if that's okay and let you ask a question because I'm you said you got involved in anarchism in the late 90s I'm assuming you're involved in like the anti-roads movement yeah anti-roads movement and there was reclaim the streets which i was more involved with that was sort of the urban side so we just used to stand in the middle of uh the street and have a massive rave basically to stop traffic going up and down and communities would get involved and um people would sort of um stance be on swings on tripods to stop the police from being able to move us um and that was the sort of urban aspect of the movement there was also a sort of rural aspect and there was like swampy who was a famous eco-anarchist in the uk he was like an absolute hero at, at the time you know lots of swampy yeah there was also stuff like um one of my ex-boyfriends sort of lived in a tree for months where there was this sort of uh ancient sacred stone site that they were going to build a road over and you know people would like live in the trees for months and things um but there was also like a sort of huge traveler scene of people that have been living in vehicles for you know it's a movement that we're going for decades of people sort of traveling the countryside living in vehicles and doing big raves and things like that and uh they brought in the criminal justice bill and sort of criminalized that lifestyle which you know people had been born into and stuff so I remember just being absolutely horrified by that. It's probably one of the things that radicalised me at the time. Uh, and I was doing a sort of politics degree at the time as well. So, Which is interesting because I feel like a lot of Americans, the impression is, is that there was not many subcultures outside of punk that drew people into the movement. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, that was a big thing in the UK. Um, and it was all connected with the sort of 
DIY culture and um, sort of eco-protesting and things like that. I'm not quite sure how to comment on that because I don't know the state's context so much, but definitely rave was quite a... Because there, there were lots and lots of illegal raves, you know, so, I mean, maybe people were just doing that for pure hedonism, but certainly the way that that was policed and criminalised sort of radicalised a lot of people. And then also there was a connection between the raves and the traveller scene and then the, the road anti-roads protests. So, yeah, it was a pretty sort of thriving time for radical politics in the UK. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, I'd encourage people to check out the magazine Do or Die. Oh, yeah. Uh, especially the, the last issue they put out called Down with the Empire, Up with the Spring. Uh, Do or Die number 10. I believe Little Black Cart has a book version you can buy. But that is very well worth your time to check out, which has a lot of reflections on a lot of these autonomous movements we're talking about. But it's from the UK, and they really kind of melded sort of the ecological struggle with a lot of like insurrectionary class struggle anarchism in a really interesting way, which I thought was great. Yeah, there's an anthology actually, which might be easier to access than the old. Uh in the old scenes, I guess, is, is called uh, Cracks in a Grey Sky. I've got it right in front of me, actually. Yeah, that's the one I'm talking about from Little Black Heart, I believe. Oh, yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, it's a great, it's a great book. So the, the press release for the Disaster Anarchy book writes, Disaster Anarchy is one of the most important political phenomena to emerge in the 21st century. Explain why this is so. In the book, I talk about the convergence of climate change and neoliberalism, and... Um, so I guess how disasters are becoming more frequent due to the sort of crisis of social and ecological reproduction, I call it. But, you know, basically the collapse of the oil economy um, and industrial civilization, as we know it, in a sense, seems to be something that's even I don't know if it's the same in the States, but we're hearing about it. You know, it was on the news this morning and just BBC News radio telling us that we're all going to be extinct so, so, you know, it seems to be pretty common parlance now. Um, and yeah, certainly in London, we, we've been, we had the highest temperature ever recorded. It was like 40 degrees C or something. And, um, uh, yeah, I think it's sort of quite obvious to most people, although I'm aware there's denialists and certainly more in the US, I think, than the UK. But, you know, it, it seems obvious that something's changing. You know, the world's changing. It's becoming a, more scary and unstable place um you know like the frequency and intensity of extreme weather events is increasing um but also sort of capitalism neoliberalism has increased our interconnectedness and so on so that localized events reverberate globally you know the pandemic spread incredibly quickly um, and also some of the protective measures that we might have had in the sort of post-war period, uh, like well-prepared healthcare services and social welfare. I mean, I know certainly in the States, healthcare has been a lot less universal than it is here even, but also certainly one of the big dynamics we've had here has just been the sort of erosion of, of you know, the, the health services. Um and they're just being sort of further eroded under neoliberal austerity. So I think it's this kind of intersection of just sort of more uncertainty in the weather, um, but also the interconnectedness of the world, um, the uncertainty of the economy through neoliberal things like financialization, and then also just sort of less protection for people through these kind of 
stabilizing measures like the welfare state, I guess. Um, so I guess it, it doesn't any longer seem sensationalist or sort of do, doomerist, I think is a word to say that the oil economy and industrial civilization and the associated forms of governance are collapsing. Um, and also people are just profiting from all aspects of this, you know, people are profiteering from it and, and sort of Naomi Klein's book, Disaster Capitalism's quite a good expose of that. But I hope to sort of go further than that and have a specifically anarchist critique of some of this and then also look at the movements that are sort of offering hope or at least sort of mobilising and trying to offer something different and also different to sort of new forms of eco-fascism and left authoritarianism that also seems to be on the rise. Um, so, I mean, that's why I say, I guess, it's one of the most important political phenomena. And when I say important, I think it's, for me, the only one I want to ally myself with. We want to start off by talking about the growth of mutual aid programs in the UK after the rise of COVID-19. So talk to us about this. Flesh out the movement and how expansive was it? And tell us about the activity and just kind of give us an introduction. Okay, so it's worth saying that um, even though I was already writing about mutual aid and I was aware of mutual aid as someone who sort of studies anarchism and, you know, had read Kropotkin's mutual aid and was writing about Occupy Sandy mutual aid, most people in the UK wouldn't have heard those two words together, you know, it wouldn't have been in the mainstream consciousness at all, because I know in the, and even even sort of radical-ish people who weren't anarchists probably wouldn't have heard mutual aid, and I think that's a bit of a different context to the US where you did have Occupy Sandy and sort of much, you know, continuing movements around it, so... I think another thing that makes talking about mutual aid a bit tricky is that um, even as it was sort of first conceptualised by Kropotkin, it can be more or less explicit or intentional. So Kropotkin uses it to sort of talk about animals even and the the fact that he saw um, cooperation as being just as important to evolution as competition. So we talk about animals engaging in mutual aid. Um, and also he talked about sort of subsistence communities engaging in mutual aid, uh, who wouldn't have referred to their actions as such and weren't organizing politically. They were just sort of living. And I think a lot of stuff that happens in the aftermath of a disaster or even in just sort of normal working class and marginalized communities in the UK and elsewhere anyway could be understood as mutual aid and fit all the sort of parameters of the term without necessarily calling itself that or other people even needing to call it that but after after covid there was this sort of mutual aid movement of people explicitly calling themselves mutual aid and organizing these groups and there was this national website uh covid19 mutual aid uk and i've not been able to find out a huge amount about the people who formed that apparently they started uh some people started an explicit mutual aid group in lewisham uh in london so that's South London. I'm in North London and, uh, you know, it's a big joke that, you know, you don't go south of the river and you don't go north of the river or whatever. I'm very much a North Londoner, but I do know that Lewisham has really radical groups and communities and, you know, I've gone to a lot of talks down there. Um, I'm not involved in that community or embedded in it, but I'm very aware that it's there. So I'm not surprised that this sort of thriving mutual aid group started in Lewisham. Um, and the people who started that thought that they started the first group. So one of the interviewees was very careful. She said they, the, the, the people that found that thought they founded the first mutual aid group. They don't know that. Um, 
And I, I don't know the founders of that mutual aid group either, but they were on um, national TV talking about it. And then lots of groups started to sort of spring up. And those people um, sort of felt quite responsible for the movement in some sense because they felt that they'd founded the first one and they'd been on telly. So they felt they had some kind of responsibility for the trajectory and they set up this mutual aid UK sort of umbrella group. Um, and they provided various resources and they had a sort of ethos. Um, they weren't explicitly anarchist, um, but they were definitely radical sort of, um, decolonial intersectional feminist type people. And they used a lot of anarchisty sort of discourse on the website, um, about sort of keeping things local and not being affiliated with state agencies and things like that. Um, so I think it was a really useful website and then it did become this sort of huge national movement, which was in many respects amazing. Uh, I, I was taken aback that mutual aid had become a term in the UK. Um, I think there was, and, and it's also difficult to sort of associate the, the, the shape the movement became with the sort of initial you know ethos of this website um i think it was sort of something that people wanted to happen and it, it, it became that term that they got behind um but i think there were a lot of webs there, there were a lot of problems with the way that sort of website encouraged people to organize in the sense that it sort of recommended a spatial strategy of doing it by borough and ward which is sort of replicates the uh, territorial forms of the state in a way so it's like electoral districts and I think that made them prone to co-optation and de-radicalisation by local officials. So some of my interviewees called it the local councillor problem. So, you know, they, they'd organise a, a mutual aid group and the, the local councillor for that for that ward would sort of get involved because they'd be like, well, that's my territory. This is who I represent. You know, I'm in charge here. And they'd sort of join and try and turn it into a sort of council enterprise, I guess. Um, and then there were a lot of, you know, there was this kind of very depoliticized, uh, large, large, largest probably section of the movement who didn't want mutual aid to be political. So I look at some of the, a lot of the problems with that about how it sort of became largely a sort of helping exercise, helping people shop, um, and sort of papering over the cracks where the welfare state and sort of neoliberalism have been you know, left people vulnerable um, without radically questioning anything. Um, but also I talk to anarchists. So in the book, I, I, I interview people who are explicitly radical. Um, and, um, yeah, I think there's a lot of inspiration to be taken as well as critique of um, sort of policies and ideas that sort of make mutual aid merely this kind of commodified helping thing, I guess. So it seems interesting because my impression of things is that the movement sort of, I don't want to say got away from people, but kind of like took on a life on of its own outside of the activity of anarchists and other radicals. Whereas here in the U.S. it was, it was very much a mixture of a lot of people like hunkering down and, and starting projects. Also a lot of people taking their own initiative, but it seemed very much uh, a reflection of sort of like building autonomous action and thought and people wanting to intervene in this moment. Is that how you would describe it? Yeah. 
Yeah, definitely in a way. But also there was this kind of explicit mutual aid movement and that was kind of uh, valorised and glorified in the press and, uh, you know, on this website and in the news and stuff um, as a sort of depolitical thing, sort of as, as social capital, I guess. Um, but there were more radical sections of the movement as well. There were sort of um, anarchists and other radicals who were involved who sort of had their own groups but would also be involved in local groups and they'd try and sort of continue or, you know, initiate sort of quite political discussions within those groups. And then there were also just communities and people doing stuff which personally I would refer to as mutual aid, but they might not even have been using that term. And, like, that's what I ended up getting involved in personally because um, I, 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 I got involved in my local mutual aid group and it was like a sort of WhatsApp group where people were discussing things. And my groups was one of the ones that I just felt was sort of irredeemably uh, sort of middle class and co-opted and um, I couldn't bear it, to be honest. But another one of my friends was involved in this uh, sort of other local group that didn't call themselves mutual aid, but they were sort of cooking cooking meals and they wanted bicycle couriers. So I ended up like couriering meals to people. Uh, but nobody called that mutual aid, and it wasn't a mutual aid group. If you see what I mean, it was it was a different thing. You say middle class. Can you define that? Yeah, I guess I'm talking about a sort of. Um, I mean, it means different things to different people. Um, I mean, I. Partly, I mean, sort of white collar workers, people that have secure employment contracts and, you know, maybe a bit of capital to keep themselves going and they can afford their rent each month without being sort of. So, I mean, I'd include myself within that in a sense, but also it goes along with this sort of bourgeois morality, which sort of excludes other people through sort of customs and rituals and discourse and just sort of generally looking down on people or, you know, um, discourse policing just sort of seeing seeing your 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 own sort of moral outlook as somewhat superior to other groups i suppose um and i i guess we you know we've got a big tradition of sort of i mean i i suppose you're doing parts of the u.s maybe maybe more on the east coast but a big tradition of sort of uh strikes and unions and things like that so that would be seen as a sort of working class movement um and then, the, you know, we're having a lot of that at the moment. The rail workers are all striking. Um, and even though they're on a decent wage, perhaps, you know, perhaps more of a decent wage than some people who might explicitly self-identify as middle class. But um, uh, there, there's a sort of sense of working class solidarity, if you see what I mean. And, um yeah, it's hard to explain. I, I mean, the class system is just so ingrained and so such so much part of sort of British political life. I think that it's hard to explain it to someone that's not enmeshed within it. <laughs> so, just one other question uh, in terms of just the kind of explosion of mutual aid stuff. Did different anarchist groups there like decisively get involved, or was it more of kind of like people on an individual basis sort of getting involved in local groups? Like, did different networks make, like, decisive interventions, like, we're going to set up, you know, our own kind of mutual aid stuff, or it was more just people kind of getting in where they fit in on the local level? Yeah, that's a really good question, actually. You know, it's a combination of those. Um, and from what I knew from my interviewees, who are people that I I know 
sort of from living in London ten, for ten years and being involved in anarchist stuff. So I think I think they sort of had their fingers on the pulse pretty much. And from what I can gather, people did get involved locally. Um, and what that meant in practice was that some people would be the only anarchist in their group and they'd be getting incredibly frustrated uh, with, you know, some of the conversations and things that were going on and, you know, having to stop people from calling the police on people and just being the only one person in the group that felt that was a, that was an acceptable position. Um to groups where, you know, they were almost entirely anarchists because there was a sort of thriving anarchist scene in the in the local area and, you know, quite early on people who weren't anarchists kind of dropped out. Uh to people who would be sort of, you know, there'd be a few anarchists uh in the group and then mostly non anarchists. Um but then there was a there was a sort of uh, London wide uh sort of whatsapp uh not what it was, i can't remember but it was on one of the platforms um uh sort of so anarchists interested in mutual aid were in a sort of chat group um and sort of sharing their frustrations and experiences with you know the, their groups and how radicalized or not they were um and there were also mutual aid sort of anarchist groups that were associated with particular spaces so there was a squat and there was a social center i think there was more than one squat and there was a social center so there were sort of anarchist spaces that mutual aid groups sort of grew up around the community associated with that anarchist space, if you see what I mean. Um, so it was a real mishmash in a way. I was going to say, I feel like one of the things that really propelled things here in the U.S. was just the idea that no one was coming to save anybody and that, you know, part of the problem was that our the healthcare system is so non-existent and so many people were just not going to get care. Uh, the system yeah. was already kind of pushed to capacity and the state really had no desire to expand uh, its services. And things were already pretty bad economically. And this was only going to make things worse. I'm curious, like in the UK, like were things... I guess that bad or was the state picking up a lot of slack? I know you all have more of a social safety net, although it's being eroded. Yeah. I mean, I think people were very receptive to critiques of the state and the Tory government in particular, you know, and, and still are, you know, cause our, our prime minister just got, <laughs> I mean, uh, it was something else he got, um, sort of deposed for. Ultimately, but you know, he was having parties during lockdown and breaking his own laws. And um, people, especially on the left, but the non non radical left, you know, just general left liberals, have are always receptive to a critique of the government. Um, but they're not necessarily receptive to a critique of sort of government per se or you know authoritarianism, if you see what I mean. So I think there are a lot of people like that in the movement who who wanted it to you know, who felt angry and were and wanted to do something that was political in the sense of being against the current political party, um and also a kind of do goody type helping thing, but they didn't they didn't want to be too radical if you see what I mean. So I think there were a lot of people like that. And also we had a government furlough scheme which meant that people in who had sort of permanent jobs I can't remember the exact criteria. I knew the ins and outs of it at the time, but it feels like quite a while's past. But people, because I, I worked, so I, I was working from home anyway, so I didn't need to go on furlough. I was like a researcher, so I was already working from home. Um, and I didn't stop working. Um, 
And that had its own problems because everyone in my house, I, I lived in a big warehouse at the time with like seven people and everyone else was either unemployed or they were on furlough. So it was just like party time in a way. And it wasn't, we weren't breaking any rules because there were seven of us in the house anyway. So everyone else liked party time. And I was like, I've got to do a job. <laughs> um, but like some people got this furlough thing, which meant the government paid 80% of their wages you know, for the whole time they're off work, it was like employment retention. So it did mean there were these huge swathes of people who had secure employment contracts uh, but couldn't go to work, sort of being paid by the government who had a lot of time on their hands. So I think a lot of those people got involved in mutual aid movements and that partly explains why there were a lot of, why there was this huge movement of not necessarily anarchists, if you see what I mean. I'm curious how people dealt with this problem of the the lack of politics or trying to like uh divorce politics uh from the mutual aid uh organizing. I mean that's I talk about that a lot in the book and I was just astounded by some people's patience to be honest. Um the anarchists I spoke to and I suppose a lot of anarchists are kind of used to being told that you know their ideas are impossibly idealistic or being shut down or being silenced um but just listening to the sort of patience with which people sort of dealt with that just constant silencing and invalidation within these sort of whatsapp groups and things i mean i couldn't i couldn't necessarily deal with it and a lot of people did deal with it and they did get somewhere and they sort of progressed and i think that there were definitely other groups so i think some of the people um I spoke to there was well definitely everyone I spoke to there was this huge thing about the frustration of sort of all these people just shutting down anything even vaguely beyond shopping or helping but also there were people who said that that people did become a lot more receptive to anarchist organizing um you know because they saw it as effective or you know that organizationally it was seen to be desirable I think it was just sort of anything beyond so, so so this sort of non-hierarchy has been sort of valorized as this sort of really flexible form of organizing but i think sometimes the politics and ethics behind it there can be problems and one of the big arguments i make is that that it needs to be mutual aid in order to be like really mutual aid has to be linked to some kind of sort of defense of the community if 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 it becomes dispossessed so a lot of the more radical actions were associated with squats or community centers or like actual spaces um and then that evolved involves police at one point trying to evict a group and um you know there were other groups where people were sort of trying to say we need to stop members of the community being evicted from their home you know and and then the, the group would say no that's not that's not mutual aid but it's like how how is it not mutual aid if you see what i mean um sorry i'm blethering a little bit one of the big contexts in the u.s was that all this stuff was happening amidst this massive culture war where the right attempted to label everything either blm or antifa yeah i saw that in the news actually definitely i saw the, the whole sort of um anti- antifa is this sort of uh you, you know organization people thinking it's this sort of big powerful organization that must be resisted and so on it's like it literally means anti-fascism right well it was helpful for them because it allowed them to basically explain just autonomous anarchist movement activity as sort of this 
kind of weird, scary term that sounded conspiratorial. <laughs> so it's like people helping yeah. each other. It's Antifa. So it's like members of Antifa. So it just had this sort of conspiracy attached to it. Um, and we were talking about some of these responses. I mean, some of that, you know, backfired because mm-hmm. then it became, it's like, oh, the Antifa are helping people. We had that a little bit here, you know, anything sort of semi-radical would be labeled as BLM. <laughs> yeah, totally. Um, yeah, there was definitely some of that here. I think it, I think it's more intense in the States, but we definitely do get some of that here. And one of the, one of the, I think sort of you and I were just discussing just before the show with that, just the sort of um, community action or just how sort of racialized it all is and, and the fact that there weren't a lot of police on the streets or around and that was something we sort of had here like you'd, there'd be these laws and they were really restrictive and we'd have like park benches taped off so you're not allowed to sit on a park bench and we had these like one-way systems in parks and things and there'd be all these crazy rules in place but you know, it'd just be sort of people policing each other. and and But then the only police that my interview, through all my interviews, encountered was they had a really tiny sort of Black Lives Matter protest in a sort of suburban area of London. It wasn't, there was a big one in the centre, but then they had this tiny little suburban one, uh, you know, with about five people on a street corner, and the police turned up to it. <laughs> Um, and that was one of the one of the few encounters with the police was this sort of mini five person BLM process. Yeah, I mean here in the US, obviously, I mean things changed in the summer of 2020 when the George Floyd Rebellion exploded, and there was lots of. I mean, there's already a lot of mutual aid stuff happening at the time, so that kind of like fed into the rebellion because there was in Minneapolis there was George Floyd Square, so there was sort of these kind of like pop-up makeshift uh, hubs that were set up which is interesting because now i mean you see it evolve again a lot of people are doing like a defense of encampments that are being evicted and like with the summer people are now doing like mutually programs around how hot it is to try and get people water and stuff like that so there's this constant evolution of what people are doing yeah i mean it's hard to it's hard to sort of keep in touch with it like with it all sometimes i mean now you're mentioning some of these things i think like certainly we had some some sort of maybe smaller scale versions of those things and we had this sort of big wave of protests as well in in the summer similarly i was quite focused on a specific snapshot in time i guess just the sort of initial spring and summer lockdown um when it was very much about getting food to people um and also just focused on a sort of longer term critique of the kind of policies that the sort of a history of states trying to trying to de-radicalize this stuff sort of discursively. So rather than simply repressing people and sort of uh, criminalizing them, which which also happens, you know, calling things l- looting and so on when. You know, people, certainly after sort of Hurricane Katrina, I know that happened a lot, where people were sort of merely trying to meet their survival needs and it was sort of discursively cast as their looting. There's a pretty famous instance of uh, one one news program that like had a shot of, I think, like a white family taking some yeah. obviously looted stuff and they're like, oh, they're, <laughs> they're doing what they need to do to survive. And there's another one of like some... Yeah, that's exactly what Black guy, and it was like, oh, they're looting. Yeah, it's exactly the same picture, but there's some white people and there's some black people doing exactly the same thing. And it's, uh, you know, these people are creatively finding ways to get food for their family, and then these people are looting. 
Well, just going forward, what do you think are some of the lasting lessons from this wave of mutual aid organizing after the pandemic in the UK? I mean, I think sort of one of the things that I'm particularly interested in are the ways in which sort of large sections of the movement were recuperated or de-radicalized in a sense. So just sort of depre- the depressing stories I was talking about, about more radical discussions and actions around eviction resistance and protests being shut down. Uh, and people sort of operating according to this kind of bourgeois morality and wanting mutual aid to be about shopping and sort of some of the groups even sort of this sort of passion for surveillance and um, threatening to call the police on people and things. But like, I, I also think there's, there's, I think that's really important to think about because I try and situate that in the book in a sort of longer term explicit and intentional policy of the state to kind of treat certain sections of the movement that can be state friendly. Um, I'm not sure if you're aware of after Occupy Sunday, one of the things I talk about was the Department of Homeland Security published this document called the Resilient Social Network. Did you hear, did you hear about that at all? It was sort of taught praising the movement. I believe I've heard of it, but why don't you talk about it? And also you mentioned Occupy Sandy. Just tell us a little bit about that, because some people may not even been around when that happened. So Hurricane Sandy was a big hurricane in the States in 2012 that hit sort of New York and the northeastern seaboard. And um, there was this huge social movement, Occupy Sandy, that was sort of mobilized. So Occupy Wall Street had been... Um, evicted the previous year and obviously that was a huge movement huge international movement um, but certainly huge in that part of America and then Hurricane Sandy hit after that and then loads of people the sort of um, there were sort of social networks and um, as in on the internet and then social networks as in people who knew each other that were obviously still heavily invested in that movement so it was sort of this latent thing that was able to come to life again and people are able to mobilize through it to um uh mobilize relief after after hurricane sandy and they did things like mold remediation in people's homes uh but they also set up some really cool cooperatives and oral history projects they, they were sort of widely acknowledged by you know in the mainstream media and so on to have mobilized relief more effectively than the red cross and fema and there was like really widespread public up anger with those two agencies because of their sort of perceived failures and then Occupy Sandy were there helping people do stuff and um you know it's sort of PR failure for the state and a, a PR success for sort of anarchism but the, then there was this sort of report that was commissioned by the Department for Homeland Security after the after the fact but drawing on kind of overt and covert surveillance within the movement that you know activists had been aware of and a bit creeped out by at times um this report was written sort of like how do we mobilize the youthful energy of these activists you know the the urgent even though they were part of this you know um and they were they were really patronizing the, the whole language and the reports really patronizing even though they were involved with this sort of you know a rather you know idealistic and unfortunate occupy wall street movement you know the urgency of this situation didn't leave any time for politicizing and you know they they organized with resilience and flexibility and they were efficient because there wasn't as much red tape and basically sort of praise, praising the organizational aspects of um 
anarchism with anarchic organising or, you know, they weren't all explicit anarchists um, by any means. Uh, But, you know, praising their sort of state-friendly efficiency actions, but kind of, you know, diminishing their anything anything radical or political about it explicitly and saying how do we as, as a state how do we how do we have a policy that kind of can integrate these kinds of actions into our whole community approach uh and it and and in the book i sort of situate that in a critique of it's basically like there's since world war Two, there's been this kind of cybernetic management um discourse in disaster studies and i sort of try and situate those kinds of um reports and ideas around social capital and we had a lot of it in in britain you know around even like the tory government were using the term mutual aid and i sort of argue in the book that that's that's explicitly designed to kind of encourage and mobilize the sort of state friendly papering over the crap cracks shopping actions that are helpful to the state and then you know criminalize and securitize those actions which aren't and and make them sort of appear illegitimate and so on um and and you know like we were talking about looting you know uh some some people's looting is helping and some people's looting is somehow dangerous and criminal um so yeah i try and situate that in a sort of longer policy field so what are the subversive elements of mutual aid that we should work to strengthen and expand you know we talked about recuperation what are we actually doing right that we should kind of double down on okay i mean i think personally i think just being together in community and having relationships with people that aren't commodified and they aren't sort of in the terms of the state and they aren't useful to the state or capitalism um I sort of feel like that's already radical in a sense. Um, and I think it's, it's already subversive. Um, so I think one of the big arguments in my book and something that I feel quite deeply on a personal level is that the state seeks to capitalize on all our social relations. So I don't know. I guess it's sort of, like I said, I, I sort of, I, became active in the late nineties and we didn't have the internet then, but it just seems even more obvious now that, people sort of have these Instagram stories where they're sort of commodifying themselves as a person. And I suppose people have always done that, but you know, there's, there's life beyond that and there's relationships beyond transactional relationships or, you know, things that, things that are useful to capital or the state. And I think mutual aid is an example of that. You know, the idea of something being truly mutual and people helping each other without, you know, not for money, uh, not for esteem or power, just because that really human, like, um, sort of in the book, I argue that the, the, that that's what the state is against in a sense. The state seeks to capitalize on everything. All creativity and social relations is something that, that capitalism and the state will want to either recuperate or if they can't recuperate it or commodify it, they'll want to shut it down and stop it. Um, in specifically the disaster context, I think that disaster capitalists will come and dispossess and profit from all the creative action and, you know, lovely profit pro- projects and infrastructure will, you know, get turned into, well, this is a nice area now. Let's gentrify it. Or, you know, this is too radical. This is irredeemable. Let's cut it off from capital. You know, so it, it sort of securitizes disasters by dividing the deserving for, poor or sort of nice social capital forms of mutual aid, uh, sort of state friendly type stuff. And 
and it will set these in opposition to sort of radicalised and racialised forms of community action that are constructed as sort of violence, disorder and looting and so on. So I guess what I argue for is that if you're just things like I keep going on about eviction resistance, but there was this sort of beautiful action in Glasgow where um, the the um, uh, the immigration police turned up and tried to sort of rip some people out of their homes at like five in the morning or something, and and um, the, the the community came together and there were like thousands of people and they stood in front of the police vans and uh, you know they just called all their friends and there were just thousands of people and in the end you know the van couldn't move and it was a standoff and eventually the the men were released and i guess that's a sort of example of what i think mutual aid really is you know mutual aid isn't about well let's help the nice people in our neighborhood but you know there's somebody doing you know there's some people hanging around on the street corner and let's call the police on them you know i don't i don't think mutual aid should be about that i think it should be about building community and ultimately resisting things that seek to dispossess community i suppose and to me that that's an inherently sort of almost spatial thing so it involves direct action you're listening to it's going down part of the channel zero anarchist podcast network Follow us online at itsgoingdown.org and on Twitter at IGD underscore news. If you like and appreciate this podcast, go to itsgoingdown.org slash shop and give us a one-time donation. Sign up to donate monthly or donate through Bitcoin. Again, that's itsgoingdown.org slash shop to support. And now, back to the show. What were some of the limits that you saw the mutual aid groups coming up against and how do you think that we could overcome them? Yeah, I mean, burnout's a massive thing, definitely. And I'm not quite sure, because, you know, people run out of money as well, or there's things like these furlough schemes, and then they run out, and it's like, we have to go back to work now. Or And then also just sort of the limit of interpersonal differences and so on, like political differences are a big one. And I've sort of talked about that already, like people being silenced within groups and groups and movements splitting, because people understand the politics of the thing differently um but even like interpersonal differences and and yeah that i suppose that's one of the things that in my work i've never really quite found the answer to like i did my before i worked on disasters i did a project on like intentional communities and one of the biggest things that seemed to tear communities apart was like sort of difficult and authoritarian people sort of throwing their weight around and sort of splitting things and so yeah i know i'm not quite sure how to overcome it i mean um one of the things i think is important is having a good critique of authoritarianism and maintaining sort of having having a good critique of one's own internalized authoritarianism and sort of maintaining a sort of radical and optimistic and utopian outlook maybe and i think maybe and also i think just recognizing the dangers of the fact that the state does want to do these things as well and that it has intentional policies and you know policies and practices in place to to split movements and maybe just sort of knowing as in individuals and groups and communities how to resist these tactics uh when the state tries to repress us and depoliticize us and including the internalized state and like that that's sort of partly why i wrote the book and i sort of think or hope it's at least partly useful by offering an in-depth analysis of some of the sort of state policies and discourses and practices that have been used against previous movements and the history of the policies and 
how different movements have dealt with it um, so that people can sort of try and identify them and resist that. But I'm not sure I've got the answer. And I think that's why I think I'll probably think about that question almost too much. And that's why I end up writing books and their whole book. How can we build on these lessons and take them into the future? Um, yeah, so I think setting up longer term projects and defending existing spaces is really important. So I keep going on about that, like resisting the eviction of people, resisting the friction of squats, just like trying to keep people and communities together when they when they already are engaging in mutual aid. And, but also I think like the cooperative model. So Occupy Sunday certainly set up a lot of cooperatives uh, with money that was donated to them. And I think the cooperative model is a really great balance between something that has legal status that the state isn't, you know, necessarily seeking or able to dispossess it immediately. So it's not constantly under threat. But then within that sort of holding space for non-hierarchical organising and building radical infrastructure. Um, so I think the cooperative model's something to do moving forward. But I, I know that there's definitely been this sort of... I went to Wisconsin and there were so many cooperatives in Wisconsin. It's like I feel like the state's is ahead of everything in terms of radical organising at the moment. Um, I don't know if that was all, all, always the case and sort of going full circle, going back to my induction into it all in the sort of late 90s, I sort of felt like the UK, it was really thriving. But hearing about what's going on in, in the US these days, it feels like you lot are ahead. Uh, well, where can people follow your work and buy your books? Okay, so the book I've just written, the Disaster Anarchy one, it's 20 quid from Pluto Press. Um, the, so you can go on the Pluto Press website, Sterling from the Pluto Press website, but I don't, I don't know the current exchange rate. I mean, it used to be 20 quid would be more dollars, but I don't, I don't know if it is more dollars anymore. I've no idea what's going on with the international economy at the moment. But you can also get discount code. There's a discount code first twenty, so first thirty. Sorry, my my surname for F I R T H thirty. So you can get thirty percent off, which makes it around sixteen quid. Which I don't know how many dollars that is. But it's been printed in the USA as well as the UK, so it will be available on the US website too. Um, I haven't actually looked up the pricing there. I'd just say to anyone, you can probably get it on Amazon, but don't buy anything off Amazon ever. You can go into a bookshop and ask them to order some in, but if someone can't afford it, um, I'm, I'm negotiating possibilities with the publishers for making it open access. Um, and with all my previous work, there's probably free versions online if you know where to look. But if anyone's struggling, you can just Google my name and drop me an email and I'll, I'll find, find you a solidarity copy somehow. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. This has been the It's Going Down podcast. Check itsgoingdown.org for daily updates, columns, action reports, and news. Go to itsgoingdown.org slash shop to support us and follow us on all social media platforms. IGD, your daily resource for insurgent proletarian life.